0: Hello and welcome to Seller's Lounge. I'm your host, Pritha Dube, an international sales trainer and founder of Success Vitamin, where we help organizations create sales superstars by combining the science of selling and the emotional intelligence. On this podcast, I sit across global sales experts to find answers to some of the most pressing revenue growth questions that are on the minds of business heads, CROs, and the startup founders today. We are spotting the top trends and tools that are disrupting the landscape of sales. Ready to graduate from Sales 101 to Sales 1001? Stick around because class is officially in session. Jump right in. All right, everyone, and welcome back to this fantastic episode and this fantastic podcast called The Sellers' Lounge. And the guest whom we have today is joining us after a very, very productive day, as she says. And this is the last job of our day. And she's very, very, still very energetic and enthusiastic about uh, coming, going, coming in for this podcast. And we have Sarah Storm. She's joining us from Sweden. And uh, let me give you a little quick intro. Into who she is. And then, of course, she's going to talk about herself. Sarah drives growth and sales excellence as an advisor, speaker, and consultant, specializing in selling to the mid-sized market. In addition to a strong track record in sales strategy and GTM, which we are going to talk quite extensively, our extensive hands-on operations experience spans deep sales tech stack knowledge. Branding, Storytelling, Coaching, and Skills Enhancement. So, Sarah, welcome. And please feel free to add on to this experience of yours.
1: Yes, yes. Hi, and thank you so much for inviting me. I'm super excited, as you mentioned. (laughs) Yeah, but adding to the sort of corporate thing you read now, uh, adding to that would be that I'm a complete sales geek. So revenue has been in my career the last 22 years. I've been working all types of sales roles that you can imagine, and I have trained so many salespeople in my life in in social selling, in modern sales, in 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 sales strategy, in how to understand buyer persona, how to understand your SP, how to how to do your job efficiently when your leadership is failing you when it comes to training. So I have I have done so much when it comes to this topic because I love it so much. So I'm super excited to sort of dive into GTM strategy, inclusiveness in sales, how we need to change the industry, setting for our sales teams to accelerate, especially now when we're going through a a horrible financial situation in the world and recession and how to address that now that we're going out with new markets on new new markets with new products. And I'm just super excited.
0: (laughs) Excellent. I am also very, very excited. And so therefore we will first begin with something that I would definitely want to ask you all because, you know, there are very few women who are participating in sales. We'll obviously dig into the reasons as to why that is. At the same time, there are, again, personally, I have also met very few women. I am I also belong to one of those very few women who have been in sales and who say this, that I'm in love with this role. <laughs> You know, there are very few who are able to say this and I'm in love with this role. So tell me, how did your journey start? It? Is, was it, I mean, was it accidental? Did you think that you're going to get into revenue roles and then you continued growing into it or you got into it like it happened with me? I got into it, but then I fell in love and then my love deepened, deepened and deepened. So what's what's your story?
1: Yeah, so when it comes to how I started, so you need a bit of context and backstory first for me to, able, to be able to explain this. I have two things I need to add on. So I grew up very, very poor, like in a household where food was scarce. So that was my upbringing, which leads to a hunger for being able to make it on my own, stand on my own two feet, have my own money, that security that I didn't have when I grew up, not having to wonder where my next meal was going to come from. So that was the driver. That sort of guided me when it came to what I started working with. Because I moved from home when I was sixteen, I started working in some Malov and on the weekends and stuff when I was fourteen. So I've been working for many, many years, and I'm approaching forty now. Or I'm actually turning forty in a month. So I've been I've been working basically since fourteen after school and and on weekends to support myself because I moved at home from home so early and I had to pay my rent and stuff. Things you have to do when you leave home, right? And I remember because I lived in, I lived in a small village. I moved to our capital in Sweden when I was 18, no, 19. And when I moved, I, I went to my sister who was living in, in Stockholm. And I went to her and I said, so, so where can I make a lot of money? Because for me, that was the primary objective, to get security, right? And she was working in, in a revenue role uh, at the time. And she said, so this specific chain of gyms, the health fitness centers, have really good, great training for salespeople who haven't done sales before. You can go there and ask for a job and see if you can get a sales job there. And to the other context I need to add is that I am a very introverted person and people who know me know this. People who meet me in business contexts are always very surprised. They're like, but you're not, but I'm, I'm extrovert by choice when my, when I'm in my job role, right? So I was going to go to this office and ask for a job and I was so nervous. So I went into the, to the chain, I went into the office to the hiring manager at the, at the site. And I said, Hey, you should hire me. And then he looked up at me and he was like, what? Was like, you should hire me. I was like, okay, why? I was like, I'm going to make you so much money. <laughs> and he was like, great. You start on Monday. That was literally the interview. So I went out of there sweating, like I was sweating. My entire body was just shaking. Like, did I do this? And then the second day, and this is the moment I fell in love, the second day of the job, uh, after being onboarded for one day, <laughs> uh, we were going to go to university and we were going to stand with a booth and sell gym memberships, fitness memberships to the people on campus, which means approaching random people and start talking to them, basically interrupting their day. And I was so nervous and I called my sister. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to throw up in the trash bin. Like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and she just, no, look. I heard her serious face through the phone. She's like, "No, look, they are not criticizing or rejecting you as a person. Put your jacket on, and you just do the thing. It's not you they're rejecting." It's like, okay. So I went out, and I think we sold fifty-eight memberships that day, me and my coworker. During any day, stay standing for four hours, and I left that event high at the tight like I was so high on the emotional trigger that that gave me I was like this is amazing this is my new drug like I can't live without this now I need the high and that's sort of how I started falling in love and then when I started sort of understanding the ins and outs of it the complexity and then when I started moving over to business to business it became a lot bigger and a lot more complex a lot more keys to understand to be able to have a conversation and then it's like but this is psychology so i started reading and this is when we deepened right so i started reading not sales literature i've done that too but i started reading psychology when i was home in the evening so i was like so how do people work (laughs) just consuming and consuming so for me this role has always been and will be until ai takes our jobs about psychology and how people work what makes people work right And that's super fascinating to me. I think I will spend my lifetime working with this, but I will never learn enough.
0: And it is so interesting that you are saying this, Sarah, because while I was listening to your story, there was a flashback that was running in front of my eyes and I could imagine myself because, like you said, I am an introvert, was chosen, you know, professionally chosen to behave like an extrovert but have been introvert. Everybody around me knows that. So when I meet even professionally, people are surprised. They're like, get lost. There's no way that you are an introvert. And I'm like, okay, I can't explain that to you, obviously, because you've, you I've shown you a very different side of mine, but that's where I am. And even in my first job, that was the same nervousness, the same challenges that I had to face of walking up. I was in the financial services sector, but I also had to walk up to the people who are, uh, you know, walking into a branch, walk up to them and ask them if they are willing to buy this financial products. And it was nerve-wracking for me. But And I also get it that when you are able to close it, the high that you get, yes, exactly. I think my love for this field also started from there. And and I think the most aha moment where I found so much of similarity with you is the psychology part. That um, it is the psychology that we need to understand because that is what gives us an edge. It's not about using using you know these strategies and tactics and all that stuff. But if you understand the psychology, it makes it easier for you to talk to communicate to present your solutions this is lovely so in the revenue roles you have worked with mid size or you know uh, companies and well i've actually touched all
1: segments so i have been ic or individual contributor in enterprise i've sold the uh, erp or, or um, financial planning solutions to uh, enterprise i have sold um, to mid size and smb i have sold uh, sales tools tech, tech stack and marketing tech stack so a lot of technology i've sold a lot of tech Since I've been in SaaS, I have been selling marketing automation, I've been selling CRM, I've been selling lead generation, I've been selling things that have to do with making the marketing and revenue organization tick, right? From a system perspective, which has also led me to understand a lot about the mechanics behind what we need as an organization to be able to drive our ship forward to what we need to achieve. So from a a tech perspective, that has been heavily on reliant on tech. And I've also always been the type of individual contributor who has wanted to be able to do demos and things on my own. I have never been lenient on a sales engineer, as an example, because I want to know the tech inside and out. And I also have never sold a tech that I don't love, because that's an active choice, right? Whenever I have changed roles, it's always been to go to a company that has a tech that I love, that I will use and love to use. If that's not checked in the box for me, I don't move. So this is super important to me. And I also spent actually four years at an agency, head of revenue. And I went in when we were seven people. I exited when we were 43 or 44. And that was also a journey over four years where I did a lot of consultancy within that role too. So I both headed a team. Uh, or 4 to 5 depending on the time frame 4 to 5 reps and I also consulted for customers who needed their revenue engine to work better so we did marketing but I came in as an expert consultant and I helped them get their revenue streams to work right so it's been a it's been a very wide spectrum i used to call myself a hybrid so i'm within marketing and sales in both spectrums because i now believe that And that was the case several years ago, too. That is the same type of engine. We just need to make sure that it works like an engine, right? So this is super, super interesting to me now when I see that companies are finally understanding this fully and addressing it in the marketing and addressing it in the sales and addressing it as one, one unity communication, right? Instead of addressing it as two different departments. So when it comes to market segments, I like midsize better than enterprise, mainly because of sales cycle. I like mid-market but in than SMB because of order value. So these are things that have to do with more preference than anything else. But yes, I've touched all of them.
0: Yeah, you, but you are, and, and through that, you've you've actually given some very interesting suggestions to all those who are listening into you. One very critical thing that I caught up was, you know, you said that you sell the tech that you love and i think that is so valuable because if and that because you love that tech so you will believe in that tech and if you believe in that tech you're going to present it with a lot of passion
1: i will and i will also since i want to use it understand why other people would want to use it because for me and this is a lesson that i learned very early in my sales career for me the process of the customer journey with me ends after year one it doesn't end when i sign or when my team member signs the customer it ends when they have gone through one year without churning so we have a response i see myself as responsible both if it's a team member who signed or if it's me responsible for the sales until the first year ends and they are still with us This is super important to me. I think this is something that most revenue organizations, we try to separate, right? We try to say, we have SDRs, we have AEs. The AE should drop as soon as customer success comes in or as soon as the the customer support comes in and takes over the account. The problem with that is the customer experience for once, because they build trust with an individual, right? And the second part is churn. We are wasting money. It's pouring out of our industries today, out of our businesses today. Because we don't fully understand that churn is not a number. Churn is a promise that you fail to deliver. That's what it is. And we need to be responsible for our promises as salespeople. This is super important to me. And when you start working this way, and I noticed that when I was, I had been in SAS for two, three years, I did my first job shift and I focused in my beginning of my career to just keep them from churning. So I will on my own reach out and make sure they are okay every quarter of the year. And if they're not okay, I will fix it with the help of my team, right? And I looked at how I was going to build a portfolio that was my trustee. So my customers, my portfolio. And when I t- changed to a new role in a new company, I suddenly had a bunch of accounts that were willing to buy for me again, addressing my career because you, as a sales Person, even if you're FDR, if you're AE, if you're senior AE, whatever your role is, this will not be your last job. This will not be your last job. So, how can you make sure that you build relationships that will last you over your career? Because it will give you a pipe when you enter a new role that is already up for the reaping to sell again to. But then you need to put in the work. And that's something that I have heard very few revenue managers. Talk to their salespeople about this. And I don't understand why. Can you tell me why? Do you know?
0: I also don't know. I think uh, to my understanding, from the research that I have done or from the, from the revenue managers that I've trained or coached or consultant, a mindset that I receive or I've understood is that the vision is very short-term. See, you've mentioned that you know you want to keep that client with you forever. And that somewhere that vision is missing to people. They're, they're working with, I need to just finish my quota. That's it. Once I finish my quota, then let's move on to the next one. So that, I think that's the mindset that is kind of creating a...
1: I know. And it's a problem. And the thing is, I, I've talked to a lot of revenue managers about this concept that I have for me. I have two daughters, one nine-year-old, one 16-year-old, Right. And when I work with my children, what is my end goal as a parent? My end goal is to make them be self-sufficient human beings. So functioning without me, that's my job, to make them go into a life where they will be pursuing the things that makes them happy, where they will be able to take care of themselves. I have always approached my revenue team members when I have been a leader of a team the same way. So the first session with all new team members, even if I inherited a team because that happened to, have been good. Look, I am here to make you successful long term. You won't stay here forever. What do we need to build for you so that you can manage your career moving forward without me and even without the company you're in right now? How can we build you to a point where you can take your next step comfortably, where you can feel comfortable, where you can grow to the point where you want? So that you can stand on your own two feet when you've taken three steps up the ladder. How can we build you there? Because for me, that is what leadership should be about. And, and the, the challenge with, with sort of with capitalism is that nothing is built to wire that way. Everything is built to be short term to be, since I am your leader, I will only train you to benefit me now. I'm not training you to benefit you later. I'm just training you to benefit me now. And this is, again, the mindset, and we were talking before we started the interview a bit about females and males in sales and stuff like this. For me, this is something that all female leaders I have talked to about this fully understand. They know this. They work on this premise already, but the male-presenting people do not. And this is a challenge in itself, right? Because then we lead. Then that leads to that we have children, everyone in the revenue team, who are not developing the skills they need to do their career well. So we're sort of yeah, we're not, we're doing them a disservice because we want to reach next quarter's budget, right? And it's not a a fair game for salespeople in my head.
0: So this is interesting that you spoke about. Give me some deeper understanding onto this now, Sarah. What makes you say so that the female leadership, they tend to understand this concept, but the male leadership is not, because we all know that there is no difference in the wiring of the brain between the two people. But what do you think causes this kind of a difference that a male leadership probably is still being so myopic and a female leadership is willing to understand? And yet the alarming thing is yet there is so little woman representation at that level. So what are you saying? Is it that the organized? No, but you're actually
1: on to one of the problems. There are so few females in high-level high level revenue roles, right? There's so few. And this is global. There's so few. And that means that all the women who has started to climb, they basically l- learn for themselves how to do this. While junior sales and revenue team members who are led led by a male, they will get trained in how to be. So this is a generations back, how sales were trained generations back, that has just dripped down into the sales led when it comes to the male side of the organizational hierarchy. While women have mostly learned themselves because no one has taught them and most of them reject the way that males are trained. Most of them reject that. And so this doesn't feel right to me, which is the most valid conversation I've ever heard someone say, this doesn't feel right because it doesn't, because it isn't right. From a perspective of long-term, which is very much something that we have in mind, being mothers and being caring from a concept, because we're conditioned to be caring. We're conditioned to to be this type of role where we think long-term. We're conditioned by society. And this is not right or wrong. This is just how society looks today. While males are conditioned differently, but they're mainly conditioned by their senior leadership who are males. So the entire culture of how to be in revenue and how to behave as a salesperson and how to become a leader in sales is conditioned by how males view the world, while women are left to fend for themselves. If we had a 50-50 split, the culture in sales teams would look very different because both types of of energy would be heard within the culture. But this is a challenge that has to do with that. We have too few women on the top leading this culture shift, right? Right. So it's a challenge with, with role models. It's a challenge with leader structures. It's a challenge with society as a whole. But I think that one of the challenges has to do with what type of openness and inclusiveness we have in conversations culturally within our companies. How many meetings have you been to where the, com- the question about culture has come up unless there's a problem with culture? Because then we talk about it a lot. But just as a a baseline agenda point on a monthly meeting, so how do we work on being more inclusive in our culture? How do we work on our soft listening skills? How do we work on leading by helping? How do we work on these things are not things that are addressed in meetings? And if they're not addressed, they go unaddressed in the organization as well. So I think that this is very much, unfortunately, conditioning within our gender roles in our society as a whole. That, that comes into the business and sort of ruins it because it's it, it's very interesting when you think about revenue as well because a, a female-led revenue teams always outwin by money, by money, right? They always outwin their, their, their counterparts who are male-led and it's the same with 50-50 split companies. So companies who have a 50-50 split in the management team always outwin on the money bottom line on how the growth of that company goes. Because with more inputs from different viewpoints, the better our businesses will work. And this is very interesting to me because I've had a lot of conversations on the social media that I work most with, which is LinkedIn on this. And I will state from studies this is data, this is statistics, that's just facts, right? And there will still be a lot of people in the thread saying, but that doesn't feel right. I don't care. This is actual data. It doesn't matter that you don't agree with the data, because the data is what the data is. And this is a it's an interesting conversation to have online because you get a lot of input when it comes to how little we trust data nowadays. When it comes to factual situations, we prefer our own viewpoint rather than being open to understanding that maybe I am wrong in my viewpoint because the data
0: contradicts me that's that's exactly what conformity by uh, conformity bias is Where you know you interpret certain things basis what do you believe of course you do so you do not want to look at it differently right so if i believe that this is how it works and this is how it should be so then no matter how much data you're bringing into me i'm not going to bother about it because that's not what's i think how i know
1: people- it's not what i want to believe so i will not believe it and it's interesting because me and my me and my husband we have very similar backgrounds he's also been in sales for over 20 years he's had all, all the revenue roles we all we talk a lot about sales at home obviously and we 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 both agree that all the females we have met in sales and revenue roles have all outbeat their male counterparts in the teams that we have hired, in the teams that we have been part of, in all the situations. They have always been better. And there are a number of reasons to why their abilities, what they are conditioned to know and to be good at, works very well in sales. There is a reason. Because we are moving to a point where sales is so transactional that buyers feel it so much. And women, normally, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm generalizing now, but the females I have worked with, they don't work with making people feel like a transaction. Their entire entity is about making people feel like a person. And that's very, very valuable in today's landscape, where AI and everything else that's going on from a digital perspective will remove the human touch more and more. So how will we make people feel like they are safe with us to make decisions together with us in a sales process? We need to adapt new methods of doing that. And many of these behaviors that are very welcome for other people is being treated like a human being, not a number on
0: a contract. <laughs> so yeah, there's lots to be done. There is indeed lots to be done. And I remember when I first spoke with George and... Uh, and I said that this is the podcast that I'm doing and I would like Sarah to come. And He was so excited. He said, oh, Sarah would love to be on this. This is a favorite topic. She loves to talk on this. I'm like, okay, I have to get Sarah now on this uh, podcast and I need to get her to speak on this and your, your passion. And your belief in this particular subject is so visible, Sarah. Now, let's get to the other side of it, which is for the tech companies which are trying to find a new market. For themselves so all those who are hearing it there, there could be a few startup founders also who are who are dreaming and uh, you know trying to find a new market in the current time because we you def, you use AI and you use the thing that you know this apprehension that AI probably not in two years maybe but very soon it may be taking over a lot of our tasks so when we're talking about a GTM how much of AI will contribute to it? And what is it that certain things that they need to keep in mind when they're doing this GTM strategy? So
1: first of all, I have, I'm on an advisory board for an AI sales tool today. So I'm sitting in these conversations a lot, trying to understand, and they're also going into the market now. So they're going into several markets at the same time as a startup, right? I just launched my own business now too. We're going to have a go to market that, that addresses consumers. We will do training. I'm not going to plug us more. What I'm saying is that going to market has changed a lot the last couple of years because we don't, we are in a place now where we have AI as a supporting agent. We're using it based on our own knowledge sphere. But most people have very little knowledge where on how to use AI. So AI in itself is not going to fix anything for you. And when it comes to go to market, because one of the things that we struggle with when it comes to go to market has to do with how we approach the entire process. It doesn't have to do with what will be content within the content plan. Who cares about that? That can AI create. And also AI can take over a lot of the SMB work that we're doing now in sales and revenue and also in midsize. So my prediction based on being in a bunch of AI. Panels, the last couple of weeks, debating this topic, when will sales be replaced, when will marketing be replaced, when will we not have these jobs anymore, when will, will we need to create new roles for ourselves, is that SMB and mid-markets, within a few years, those will not be handed by marketing or sales. They will be dealt by by marketing and AI. These segments should be online. If you have a product that costs under a certain amount and it targets a mid-market or SMB, don't build a revenue team. Build a marketing team because these things should be onboarded online. There are people in the States buying servers for half a million US dollars online today. So this is not something that's going to... It won't benefit you to build the revenue team for this. It will benefit you to build the marketing team that is scaled to do everything online for the customers. When it comes to enterprise, that I see as the segment who will be remaining at the slaughter of the SMB market and the slaughter of the, of the mid-sized market, because that is a completely different game. So let's leave enterprise out of it and let's talk about go-to-market to SMB and mid size So when we look at go-to-market, we are skipping so many steps because we are often in a situation where we are rushing things, right? Oh, we need to go to market now. We need to get the product out. We need to do things, right? And then we skip important parts, like ICP. So one of the things that we went in when I went into the advisory for the AI company that I'm advising on now, the first thing we looked at was, so who are you selling to? And this is not something that most companies can answer. I went to SawStock. 2023 in Dublin a couple of weeks ago. It's a huge sauce fair, right? 6,000 people were there. And there was a bunch of booths in the exhibition hall. And we went to every booth and we found the highest senior person in the booth. And we asked, so what is your ICP? And we had one out of 20 people be able to tell us an actual ICP. Most of the responses were somewhere in the lines of 10,000 people plus. Companies who turn over 200 million. Companies who operate globally. Like this is not an ICP spec. And when it comes to go to market, without, without ICP and go to market fit to that ICP, our go to market strategies goes to shit. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So when it comes to understanding what we need to do, we need to figure out our ICP. And ICP is a, is a complex documentation of what exactly is my best customers. And what market problems that they have do we solve from them? And how does decision-making work in the ICP? And what is happening in the industry? And what will impact their business the coming two years? Because you're not only selling to the company now, you're going to sell to them for two, three years. So what is going to change for them that we can be ahead of the game and talk to them about before that problem becomes an actual problem that will gnaw away at their their revenue, right? Right. So proper ICP work is something that most companies don't do. And what I can do for this pod is I can send over an article where I stack this down and you can share it with the the pod because this connects with me on LinkedIn and I can share the ICP mapping. You can just fill it out. And this should be a conversation between Rev and marketing to discuss what is actually the challenges we face. And you need to be obsessive about your ICP. You need to be obsessive. You need to talk to the companies. You need to talk to the market. You need to read. You need to listen to pods. You need to listen to the pods that they are listening to. Not the pods you like, the pods they like. To very much understand the buyers and the companies within that segment. Once you've done that, you need to start understanding how do we communicate with them? Where are they? And these are, for me, as a, as a person who's been at the market, like obvious things. And so many companies do not do this work properly. So they skip these steps and they say, so 10,000 employees top. All of those companies that have more than 10,000 employees, we will target. And then they go to the salesperson and they say, look, here is a prospect list from Zoom info or whatever. You should call the decision makers and the salesperson will say, what are the decision makers? And they will give you one title. You should sell to this person. The problem with organizations like that is that you can't sell to one person. So there are so many repercussions of not getting your ICP match right, because when you don't, you will stumble and you will fall and you will waste so many hours and months and, and quarterlies for your rev team to stumble across the country to try to find good prospect fit. And these are things that we skip. So that's one part. ICP, you need to do the work. And then when markets shift, you need to follow the market to understand what is coming next. Because you can be out of business within two years if you don't look ahead. And looking ahead requires intel into the industry. Because vertical, industry vertical is part of an ICP too. So if we're only looking at retails, retail companies who are trying to get greener, let's say that I'm selling something environmental, they're trying to get greener. They have legislation on them now. There will be demands coming out next year. How do we find these people who are impacting what's happening within the company to address the outside changes? You might be out of business if you don't know this. And I feel like most companies, they don't understand what recession means because they haven't sold through a recession. And, and if you haven't sold through a recession, you have, you're in for a ride. So how do we address the CFO if you have done marketing towards sales and marketing managers, as an example? And now you need to start addressing CFOs. If you don't see this coming now and start addressing that in your marketing machine with content addressed to the CFO, you will have empty pipelines next year. So I think that these things all should go into a go-to-market plan. And how do we have a go-to-market plan that is alive, but not too agile? Because then we might steer off course, right? So for me, that is, that is the baseline. And that's often the thing I see that people miss. Because once you have that in place, everything else becomes super clear to you. So, what channels? Well, it depends on the ICP. So, where, what should we communicate? Depends on the ICP. So, what type of activities does the salespeople need? Well, it depends on the ICP, right? So, everything starts on the ICP. And before the ICP, we have the product fit. Because if that doesn't match with the ICP, you're screwed too. So, this is, this is the two main things where we're missing out. And a lot of founders who do really well, they have such intense knowledge about their product market fit and about their ICP, that it's all they think about. It's all they think about. They built the system to address the problem, right? Because they most likely had the problem that they're now trying to address. So it wasn't just an idea they had. They saw the problem live in action. They saw the cost. And they saw it from within an industry that they were either selling to or they were in. So they know their industry. And then comes the next challenge. So we have a founder here, he has RevOps personnel who are selling, but they are selling products. They're not selling vision, they're not selling mission. So how can we get the founder infused into the ICP work, into the go-to-market plans? Because the founder is the ultimate salesperson for a platform or for a product because they are so passionate, Right. And they know why this is so important and they know what KPIs it impacts and they know how to speak to customers. But if you go to a founder and you ask them, so how do you sell? They're going to do this. I don't know. I just talk to people. So this is a challenge all in itself to get the founder methodology into the the go-to-market plan that you're making. Because the founder should be part of it because that person has so much insight, especially the first five years of the business, because they're so involved. Then when the the company grows and you go into scale-up mode, then it's a different story because then they're kind of disconnected still from the market because they haven't talked to customers for a while. But they have all the stories and the stories is part of your go-to-market too. If you have an ICP that fits very well, you need two, three customer stories that addresses the things that the ICP is struggling with So you can use that in your marketing. You need a revenue team who understands how to use marketing material addressed to the ICP when they address the ICP. You need a plan that has to do with how many accounts are there available. Is the time even enough for us to reach our budget, our quota budget for the year? Is it enough companies on the market? And if there's not, many companies will do this. They will be like, but we will get four ICPs. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. So instead you can get two but extensive nerdiness within those ICPs. Because as soon as you start building out more and more of these things, you will get you will get decentralized in your communication and it's going to be a challenge. Most companies are would live very well on two ICPs, two really, really good ones. And then once they go into a new country with a the product, they need to map the ICP they have in the in the other countries they're in towards the new market to understand where are the gaps. Because there will be gaps culturally, financially, there will be gaps when it comes to hierarchy and decision making, there will be gaps in who is leading the decision, how much influence does the purchase manager have. Things like this will be different between different countries, because some countries have a very hierarchical way of looking at a business, right? While some countries like Sweden, everything is flat. So everyone is on the same level, leading to no decisions being made ever, which is called consensus culture, which is horrible to sell in, by the way. So you need to be aware that there will be differences because we have a tendency of being arrogant. And I'm going to say this out loud now in this pod: We're arrogant because we think that the way we work in this country is how every country works. No, 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 man. It's not how every country works. And it's not how every hierarchy works. And it's not how every culture works. And we need to be mindful of this. And the thing that I find most helpful before you start a to go-to market as go to market project to get the strategy in place is that you have a few theories, right? You have a theory that this ICP should probably be a match. Before you deepen it too much, go and talk to 10, 10 decision makers within that company type. So you find 10 prospects, you call them up, you say, Look, I'm gonna invite you to an online coffee. I will pick your brain, I will give you something for spending the time, right? Of course, because obviously we can't waste people's time. It can be 6 months in your platform for free or it can be it can be you promising to introduce them to five people who will help them with whatever challenge they have or giving them a mentor access for some So something, you offer them something in in return. For me, it's easy because I can offer my marketing and sales skills. I can give them half an hour of a lecture for their sales teams for free as a complimentary to get access to this interview. So get creative, right? And then you sit down with these 10 decision makers for 30 minutes. You ask them confirming or devaluating questions. So you ask them, what is the challenges that you face? Is this a match? You get them excited. The point is not to sell to them. You will if you're a good fit anyway. But the point is not to sell. The point is to validate your theories that you have. And then once you validate it, you can start deepening the ICP for your go-to-market, right? So then you can start deepening it. But take look, you will, you will get useful information out of this even if your GTM or go-to-market completely changes. Because if you don't do these interviews, you will go on theory, what you believe you know, and data from the internet. Like, this is not enough. Talk to them talk to them. And if you don't want to do it from your marketing team, then the salespeople can do it. The salespeople who are supposed to open these new accounts in the new new industry, in the new market, they can do these interviews. They will learn so much because they're not trying to sell. The only point is extracting information, right? So they will learn so much. And one thing I also saw that worked really well was that I invited them to dinner. So I took these 10 people, I invited them to a joint dinner in the, in the region I was trying to go into as a go-to market, and I sat them down. We had half an hour of a pitch where we pitched, this is what we're going to try to sell on your market. And then we just gave open feedback from these people. What do you think? Give us the feedback. And they had nothing to lose. They had a nice dinner with peers of their own industry, right? So they learned from each other, and we all got to know each other. But it was basically a very, very successful type of event before you go into doing things that are based on theory alone because it's not workable.
0: (laughs) And this is so right because in the process, what you're actually doing is you are involving your customers to collaborate with you to design a solution. So look at it this way, that when your potential customer is partnering with you to design a solution you already have their ownership you already have you know their willingness and their support for the product that you are taking to the market they are going to become you know with this this small little step that you did in between you have turned 10 people into your advocates because they are going to go and talk about you to maybe 25, 50, 100 more people. And if you have to then invite them on a social media platform and you want them to talk about this product somewhere, they're happy to do it because they co-created this. In their mind, they co-created this with you. Yes,
1: yes. And specifically, this is very much... Because sometimes you don't need to change the product if you have a product that you're already selling on other markets. Sometimes you need to do no changes to the product. But what you need to do changes to is the messaging. And the messaging goes from first touch all the way into the sales cycle, all the way into the close, all the way to when they are customers, right? So you might need to tailor the things that you will say and talk to them about because they might struggle with other things. And my husband is in e-signing, or he was in e-signing before he was working as Scribe. And when he was working as Scribe, obviously there are legal requirements for different countries, for different e-signing setups. So they needed to adapt products when they went into new markets. But if you don't need to adapt products to new markets, this is about understanding the messaging that makes people get to the top of their chair like this, that makes people want to listen to you. Because once you nail that, and it's best to nail that with individuals that you want to have a new customer base. When you nail that, it's going to be unforgettable messaging compared to all the other corporate bullshit out there. So when you see people at C level sitting straight up listening to you, this is messaging. And it's the same. And I've had this conversation with so many salespeople that's been in my teams before. So when you find those things that get people to sit up straight in their chair, these are things that we need marketing to create content on. So you write down, and, and people that I've had in my teams, they come out of meetings with the notes that has to do with the meeting progress, obviously. And then a few content ideas. Every time, because this is the this is the gold of this conversation. The things that your prospects get excited about when you're one-to-one with them, these are things that marketing should create content on because that will resonate with the new people that you haven't met yet on a broader scale but we, we we are sort of all we're always in our own hands and it's stupid you're not the person you're trying to sell to so putting a 25 a year old person in front of a c-level without teaching them business acumen without teaching them storytelling that's just mean to your sales rep like there are things that they need to understand and the best part i had this, this magical thing i had a coworker who did this once and i thought it was amazing so she was going to sell to cfos she's obviously she? she was going to sell to cfos and she she was going to move from selling to hr to cfos right so a new decision maker the same industry the same icp but a new decision maker on those icps and her first step that she did was that she called up one of her uh, one of her uh, cfo contacts that she had on linkedin and he said, can I walk next to you for a day when you work? Can I just walk? Can I just, I, I will just walk next to you for a day when you work. And he was like, yeah, sure, I guess. <laughs> so she went to his office. He followed him around for a day. He sat in his meetings. She, they signed an NDA because she was very lucky. I can find an NDA. I just want to see what you do. So she walked next to him for a day. And she came back knowing everything she needed to know to be able to address the CFO in a credible way. And I think this creative mindset is also part of the, the difference we were talking about when it comes to female versus male, the creative mindset. Okay. So I don't know what's happening now. So I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out on my own because what my manager told me, we had a male manager, what my manager told me was to go online and read about CFO challenges. She was like, but that's not enough. I can do that too, but I want more. And I have a, I, um, I had, when I was selling ERP solutions the last time, because I've done it two times, once as VP sales, when I grew the team at Inclima that I just left, and then once as an individual contributor, and this is 12, 12 years ago, maybe 13. And I had a deal, and we had had three meetings with a new, a big enterprise account. It was one of my biggest deals. It was millions of dollars involved in the deal, and it was super exciting. And we had three really great meetings. Where we walked through project plan, we we were on place where everything was aligned and we were agreed and we were working hand in hand, me and the CFO I was talking to. So every meeting we came, we came further along the road of painting what they were going to do once the things were signed and finished, right? So we built a project plan, we had resources in mind that was dedicated to the project. Like we were further along in the process. And I come into the fourth meeting and I feel that something is off. It's an online meeting, I feel that something is off. And I don't know what it is. So I sort of, the meeting was about planning and I sort of wrap up the meeting and I walk out of the meeting, close my screen. I'm like, something is happening and I don't know what it is. We're off. We don't have the same. He wasn't here. I don't know what's happening. So I go, (laughs) I go to bed that night and I can't sleep thinking about this. I can't sleep. I'm like, but we were, everything was, we were checked on everything. So now I was starting to think, so maybe do, does he have sickness with his family? Like has something privately happened to him that just made him off somehow? I, mean, I don't know. I don't know what happens in people's life, but things do happen. So maybe something privately has happened to him, but I can't get it out of my head. So the day after I go to his office, so I go to his office, basically, I go up to the reception after going on the elevator thing. I go up to reception and ask, is he in? And she says, yes. She calls him. He says, he, he says, yes, you can come in. So I go into his office, I sit down in front of him and he has a desk. This was, again, it was a while ago and it was a big company. They were 3,000 employees. And he sits behind his desk and I'm like, so I don't want to be weird, but I will be anyway. So so I felt in our last meeting yesterday that something was completely off. Am I imagining this? Can you help me figure this out? Is this just in my head? And he looks at me and he's like, yeah no you're not imagining but i can't tell you why <laughs> just like okay and i was like okay can you indicate are you and then i said are you okay like is everything with your family i like are you okay he's like yes yes no it's business related yeah but okay okay because yesterday i was just thinking about maybe you were sick or your wife is sick or something happened bad right he was like no no this is business related And then we continued talking for a while and it's like, okay, so I'm going to tell you this, but this is off the record just between you and me. I was like, yes, I lean forward because I really want to know what the hell is going on. It's like, yeah. So yesterday evening, we got a note uh, yesterday in the morning, we got a notice that we're being, we're being bought. And with that, with that message, because now it's finally finalized. We were, we have, we have a purchasing stop, right? We can't buy anything. We're not doing anything. I was like, oh my God, okay, so it wasn't something I did. (laughs) He was like, no, 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 no. We were on track to doing a really, really nice project together. So no, it wasn't anything you did. I was like, okay, so now I fully understand. Thank you for telling me. And then I suggested to him because I had another another CFO a couple of years back before this meeting that had gone through a very similar acquisition. There were two companies with 4,000 employees each merged. And when you are a CFO or a C-level, that means that there will be two of you Two CFOs, two CEOs, two of everything, right? Because it isn't a bigger company buying a smaller one. It's two equally sized companies. And I was like, so I will give you his phone number and you can call him and ask him how he managed and navigated that situation. Because I think he has a lot to tell you. So you can sort of have a, a supporting agent outside of your business because now you can trust no one, right? Ha <laughs> ha. He was like, yeah, okay. Thank you so much. So he gets the contact. I say, so look, I don't care what happens with the deal. I just want you to remain in your seat here if that's what you want. So if you need anything, let me know. And then I, we, keep, we wrap up the meeting and I leave. And the only reason why I went there and didn't do like most salespeople would be do, which is I'm going to get ghosted now and I'm going to sort of let it hang in my pipe for a few months and then I'm going to close it lost. I'm not going to figure out what the fuck went wrong. Six months later, he called me back and he's like, Sarah, So we are now finalized with the merger. I am still here. It's time for our project. And then we So this is a a creative streak that has to do with my neediness to understand. I needed to understand. It wasn't about the deal anymore. I didn't care about the deal. I cared about why it went the way it went. To really understand. And we have so much revenue lying in stale pipes in our businesses where companies Don't even say no, they just ghost us and we don't even know what went wrong. And for me, that's insanity because I need to know. But that's a a tip to revenue personnel. Get a mindset where you need to understand
0: and you will learn so much. I think that's the right note at which we are ending this podcast because this exactly highlights what separates a superstar salesperson from an average or an above-average kind of a salesperson because I think this is where the difference is. Superstar salesperson wants to do it for the client, wants to be there for the client, and wants to serve the client. And any other average or, or, or anyone who is probably struggling and thinking that, oh, I'm not able to hit that number and I'm not able to achieve that superstar status... Probably look at your approach, look at how you are, you know, approaching this entire sales and revenue business. Uh, is it a very self-centered?
1: I think change your focus from your yeah. quota to the customer's need. Learn everything you can about how to address the customer need. And your quota will sort itself out. Trust me, it will. But we need, but we need to address where the challenge is with this. The challenge with this is still leadership though. So this is not an individual sales rep's failure. This is the leaders of that sales rep's failure.
0: And and I think we started from there only, that it's that mindset because they are driven by the quota. So they are training the team to chase a quota and be the self-motivated salespeople who have something bigger to achieve in their life and who have a purpose. They are the ones who are saying, chuck all these things that are coming my way. I am going to look long-term and I'm going to, you know, chart my own success path in my way. And, and look at us, all around us, all the examples that we have are of those salespeople who are saying, I am not believing this training that I am getting. I know that it is long-term and I can make it possible if I am moving away from being self-centered to being customer-centered. And I think that is, that is what the right thing is, thank you so much, Sarah. This was fabulous. There was all this while, all the things that you were saying, I was completely resonating with you on each and every point. At one point, I seriously felt like going and hugging you because it is also, it everything you are saying, it is kind of absolutely endorsing the things that I always keep saying, you know, that if there is a lot of science. Behind the way our sales has happened. It's not a random thing that you randomly just approach somebody and randomly start selling something. There is a lot of science behind it. And we started from the fact that, yes, it is psychology and that is a science. Basically, to understand and then create the strategy, the things that you spoke about, the go to market, the entire there was so structured way of approaching a market. It's not random. It's not just that I love this product. I love my idea. So it, it should automatically sell. It doesn't work that way. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was lovely, lovely discussing with you. Thanks a so lot. Yes,
1: thank you so much too.
0: <laughs> and that's a wrap on today's episode of Seller's Lounge a huge thank you to our guests and of course all of you sales champions out there who tuned into this episode if you found value in today's conversation make sure to follow the podcast and share it with your sales buddies please also leave a review sharing what you like about this podcast and if you want to take your sales game to the next level head to my website thesuccessvitamin.com, to get loads of exclusive content and courses This is your host Pratha Dube signing off with a reminder that if you are not selling, you are not winning. See you next week.